today we start um, a series in the gospel according to John. And you, you might be thinking, oh, yes, is this going to be like the seven I am? No, we're, we're doing the whole thing. So how long is it going to take? Maybe into 2024. We're pretty excited. And by we, I mean me. So this is uh, John 1, 1 to 5, 9 to 14. This is what we read. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. You can have a seat. So right there at the end, in verse 14, we hear the words that are, are perhaps like the thunderclap of John. The word became flesh. And this is what one commentator calls the greatest single verse in the New Testament. I, I would happen to agree because what I've seen and what I've experienced myself is that um, to this day, women and men, the world over, they are scandalized and excited and drawn into God's love by, by way of these four words. The word became flesh. The, the gospel according to John is the first gospel or Bible text I was handed after I said uh, yes to doing this Jesus thing. But what makes these four words so magnificent is, in part, the journey that John goes through to get to these words. So this is verse 14, but, but he doesn't start with the word became flesh. No, he, he does something different. And, and so today we start in on this journey. We go with John, the author, into this gospel, which is like a biography of Jesus's life and ministry. John is, is different than the other Gospels. If you're into film, if you're like a cinephile, what you know is sometimes in movies, there's different vantage points that help to tell the same story. And sometimes you meet a character in the story and they're like, um, they're the one who likes to do drugs or they're very mystical and spiritual. John's kind of like that guy. I don't, not like the drugs thing, but he just has this mystical, almost ethereal, and yet very gritty way of introducing us to Jesus and his life. And this is what we enter into. And really, John comes out swinging in the first 14 verses. It's like some say this is a, a hymn or poetry or a song, and it's beautiful, and it's 30,000 feet to this grand, mysterious, cosmic view, and then he gets down in the dirt which um, in essence means we have a lot of ground to cover this morning. And so I just wanna give you this one statement to anchor our time as we work our way through these verses. And the statement is this, heaven's glory grounded in humanity. Heaven's glory grounded in humanity. Those will be the words that will anchor us as we make our way through these verses. And so let's just start out with that first little bit, heaven's glory. If you were to make your way back to verse one, what you would read are, are these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. It kind of sounds like a, a riddle. Well, how can you be with, but apart, 
and separate, but distinct and then together? Yes. This is the internal complexity of, of, of God's very self. And there are some lines that simply stand apart. Like, call me Ishmael is like a line. You read that and some people are like, Moby Dick. Or uh, what's, how, how does Harry Potter start, Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of something, something lane, and they, I don't know. But like I hear that line, I'm like, oh, Harry Potter. There are some lines that simply stand apart. When you hear this, it transports you into a different world. Like this would have left the eyes wide and the ears just uh, like attuned to anybody who heard or saw these words back in John's day. And you know, today, if, if something's really good, like a song, the moment you hear it, it transports you to that scene. It's like you can almost taste the food, smell the smells. That is what John is essentially doing here. He is drawing a whole swath of people into a place and a time and a story but it's more potent than like a one-liner or a Christmas jingle or a memorable quote. Instead, it's in the beginning. If you've been around churchianity or the Bible for a while or even just a little bit and you open up page one, those are the first three words that you encounter. Like we know those words, but John's audience, they know those words because those are the words that lay the foundation for Israel's story. Those are the words that essentially bind them to the creator God in the beginning. These are the opening words that John pulls on to tell Jesus' story in the beginning. And sometimes preachers do this thing. I'm trying to queue it up. I'm trying to queue it up for you. They do this thing where if they want to get a point across, they linger and sometimes you're like, don't linger, dude. Just like, tell me the thing and let's move on. But it's a rhetorical device because it's to pause to get you to pay attention. And I imagine that if John was preaching this text and he encountered those first three words, he would go, in the beginning. Awkward pause. And then he would go on. Now, if you're a Jew and you're in that day and you hear those first three words, it cues up the next word that follows. And if you were to flip back to Genesis 1, which you can do if you want, but if you were to flip back to Genesis 1, what you would encounter is the fourth word in the book that starts the whole thing off. In the beginning, do you know what comes next? I'll tell you, God. So if you're a Jew listening in John's day, what you would expect to hear is in the beginning, God, but John says in the beginning was the word. With the first three words, John says to every Jew, listen up, I'm about to tell your story. And then he does something a little different. Because when every Jewish believer would expect to hear the story about God creating about heaven's glory, John inserts the word into the God spot, the word which is the logos. Say that with me, logos, or, or depending on how you say it, logos. It does, it, it, I've heard it both ways. And by this point, when John is writing his gospel, it's a little bit later than the other three, the synoptic, and um, the Jesus movement has blown up. It is essentially like catching fire in and around the Mediterranean. And so at this point, there are far more Greek and or Roman, but the uh, Greek Hellenized would be the technical term, followers of Jesus than Jewish followers of Jesus. And so when John picks up this language and starts talking about the logos, he's also saying, I'm telling your story as well. In the beginning was the word. You see, the word or the logos, according, according to the Stoic philosophers of Paul's day, excuse me, of, of John's day, 
They referred to this animating principle that kind of undergirded all things. In philosophy, you're trying to strip back everything and understand what's at the bedrock. That's what they called the logos. That was the bedrock of understanding. And there's this cosmic reality of the logos. But then also within you, there is a logos present there that you can resonate with the cosmic logos and reach something that someone might call enlightenment or what we would just call reason. But what you would have to do is you would have to strip away all of your carnal pleasures. You would have to embrace discipline. Have you noticed um, stoicism has actually kind of taken on some new hype? It's the language of around discipline. If you listen to people like Jocko on, I don't know, or like your Joe Rogans of the, of the world, they have like this little flair to it. And it's there. It's that put away these things, apply discipline, and your best life will follow. That's in some sense the case. In this and that day was called the logos. It was the, the thing beneath the thing. But in this passage, John essentially says that lofty philosophical principle that you think undergirds all things, yeah, that principle is a person. And he undoes that way of thinking that you would have to get rid of those desires, that you'd have to get rid of those gross bodily impulses to reach the logos. He says, actually, the thing beneath the thing is a person, or don't you remember the end of verse four, or the beginning of verse 14? The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So my, my point that I'm getting at here is that John is giving us more than a history lesson. He's doing more than blending philosophy and theology. John is making this audacious claim that an obscure and displaced ethnic minority's God, that is Yahweh, who grounds reality generally and specifically, the heaven's glory, he brings those together, Jew and Greek, you and me, that God brings all these things together and does so in the flesh. That if your story maps on to Jew or Greek or essentially Jewish and anybody else, you or me, male or female, then this story is about you. It's about heaven's glory grounded in humanity. And so with that in mind, just hear this text afresh. Like maybe the first time we read it, you were confused of why you had to stand to do this. So now since you're comfortable, let this wash over you afresh. In the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God and the Logos was God. He was, that is, the Logos was with God in the beginning, and through the Logos all things were made, and without the Logos nothing was made that has been made. In the Logos was life, and that life was the light of all mankind, and the light shines in the darkness. Now pause right here. If you were to keep reading in Genesis 1, and you read, in the beginning, God, do you remember what happens after that? I'll, I'll tell you again. God starts creating the heavens and the earth. What's up there and what's down here? And then he starts filling them with this stuff. But what we hear is that the light breaks out in the darkness. It's almost as though, and it's intentional, John is mirroring the, the creation. It's like a new thing is happening, picking up in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And we'll, we'll touch on this next week. There's a blurb about uh, John, not the author, but the baptizer. And we'll come to him next week. But it, it picks up a, around this language of the light. The true light, verse 9, that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. It's almost as though if the creator God came on the scene, that you would expect magnificence and glory and fanfare but does Jesus come that way? 
He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who trusted or believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And then this is our line. The Logos became flesh, made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I don't know if you've noticed this, um, but there still seems to be like this longing for the divine that slips in to conversations. It's not necessarily religious. I had a chat with a gal here. She said, I've been feeling like, um, my, my, uh, like, like a little bit more spiritual, not religious, but a little bit more spiritual. It's as though um, that impulse for the divine slips out in conversations around, like, but, we, but it's labeled as the, like you just have to trust the universe, so there's pleas for help from the universe. The sad fact is that the universe doesn't really give a rip about you or me. The universe is rather cold and indifferent, and um, it's cold and indifferent to our suffering, to our story in general. See, I was at, uh, a while back, I was at the slowdown on the north side for a meeting, and uh, it, it had cleared out, so it's just me and then a couple baristas. And the baristas start talking as though I'm not there, which was fine, but I was eavesdropping, as you do. And, uh, and they start talking about their astrological signs. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So I, you know, like position myself to try and uh, eavesdrop a little better. And they start talking about their compatibility with their present partners and how they're not sure if they actually can come together and they're like, I'm learning new stuff. But in the moment they're talking about this and I just, I'm, I'm like scoffing. I'm, I'm politely judging from afar. And as I was coming back through this account, and just thinking about the Logos and reading some of the history around that of just going, oh my gosh, no, that is a deeply human thing. And I started to feel this like conviction around my scoffing because tucked into their conversation about astrological signs was this sincere hope that there is this benevolent force out there and that maybe somehow possibly that benevolent force will like bless us, but just how we want in our timing and according to our plan. But that would be great if that could take place. John is not just speaking to the heart of ancient questions. He is meeting us in the middle of our own longings, longings that bubble up with language like the divine and the universe, but language that we can articulate through the scriptures as Jesus, as the word, as the one who created all things. See, John meets us in the middle of our longings, in the middle of our own darkness, and he does it with more than a principle, but he does it in the person of Jesus. And it's not John who does it distinctly. John just tells the story. It's Jesus's story coming through John to you and me today. By the way, do you get how crazy this is? That, that the living God mediating through the word, the spirit, is like drawing us into new life. And you're here, like you chose on a Sunday morning to get out of whatever routine you had op like an option to and step into a co-working space that's a little awkward with uncomfortable things under your bum and to hear afresh the story of Jesus because it sets something ablaze in your heart. Because it's not just a principle, it's a person. Or as John records it, the word became flesh. 
See, up until verse 14, John's been waxing poetic. He's been telling this cosmic and grand story about the creator recreating its heaven's glory, but now he grounds it, and he does so in this one word, in the flesh. And I won't get too nerdy here with you, but just a little bit. Um, like most Greek words rendered in the English, there's lots more to be had in the Greek than there is the English, but you don't have to know Greek to read the Bible. Let's just say that. It's not like you have to have a Greek lexicon or a dictionary to make sense of what the Bible's saying. But here's just an example. Love. Love is one word in English, but when you parse it out in the Greek, it actually unpacks as four. You have uh, philo, or philo, and eros, and storge, and agape, and some of them are about like self-giving love. Others are about affection. Others are about friendship, and some are about intimacy. You know, it's like this really complex thing, but we say love. Likewise, flesh. Not four, but you unpack it and there's two. There's soma and sarks. Soma is like this good and positive way to describe a body. It's the airbrushed picture in a magazine. It's what you curate on Instagram because of all the filters. That's soma. Sarks is a little bit more lowbrow. It's like saying poop in front of your grandma during the holidays. It just doesn't quite land, but you think it's funny. And Linnea and I laugh and everybody else goes, gosh, you just said poop in church. So that's, that's sarks. In the New Testament, sarks will even be used to talk about the negative aspects of our body, like death and decay, sin. John quite intentionally chooses the second word. He, he says this, the word, the logos became sarks. The body wherein the word of the logos chose to dwell was the kind of body with cravings and BO and appetites and emissions, the sarks kind of body. Here is your cosmic king. Sarks. And the flesh is this dual scandal on the one hand because it's coming to the Jews. The, the word became flesh and the Jews, the people for whom the, the creator God was so holy, so revered that they wouldn't even take the holy name on their lips. Instead of Yahweh, they would say Adonai. That's on the one hand, and on the other hand, you have the other part of the scandal, which is these Stoic philosophers think that the end goal of the body is actually just decay. You're actually to get out of your body. So to say that the word, the logos, is actually rooted in your very real, your very normal body, your natural body, that is scandalous. To say that the ground of all things, the root of reason, is sarks? See, instead of the apex of divinity, the creator God comes down and gets dirty in the flesh. And there's nothing more grounding than our flesh. Why else would a statement like, I hit rock bottom, have such resonance? If not by which we mean, I have totally exhausted all my options and I have now been on my fourth bender or whatever your bottom is. And it's there then that we realize we can move forward, but we cannot do so by ourselves. That is where God shows up. This is less of an introduction to the gospel according to John and more of a reminder that God shows up in the places that we do not expect him. This is like the continuation of Christmas, just trying to milk it for all it's worth, people. In six words, in the beginning was the word, John's gospel wraps its arms around the ancient Mediterranean saying, essentially, this story is for all y'all if he was in the South. There's new creation, there's light overcoming darkness, there's inclusion, this is your story. Then, 
At the end, in verse 14, he, to the very same people, scandalizes them. It's your story, but it's a different type of story. It's not the high and mighty and divine type of story that you thought. It's grounded in humanity. It's a different type of story, a Sark's story. Why? Why draw in all the people and then also scandalize those very same people? Well, I think for the same reason as the first, to say that this is not just a story for the upper crust Jewish and Greek, but it is a story for those who've been forgotten, who are on the margins, who when you think you don't matter or you are not seen or if you don't get a like or a retweet or a like, that is the person for whom the gospel according to John is written to say that the light has broken into the darkness and the darkness you're sitting in, well, it just can't overcome the light. And you might look up in, at the night sky and say, well, it looks like there's a lot more darkness than there is light. But have you ever been out in the country when there's no light pollution? That is, I've done this one time, and I, it was in the middle of winter, and the moon was just a crescent moon, which means it wasn't shining too bright. And I, you can like see the Milky Way you just look up, your neck hurts. You're like, oh my, you feel so small. That light has broken into the darkness. It simply cannot overcome us. John's not teaching a master class to the ascending elite. No, he's, he's saying in, in essence, this is a story about the one whose love motivated. Like when a, when a husband and a wife come together and they say, hey, what, what do you think about us trying to like maybe, I don't know, have bits of us go into the world? It's like generative love moving out into the world, this community of eternal love, like, yes, let's do this. That is the story, and it's moved toward all of humanity, heaven's glory grounded in humanity, in the flesh nonetheless. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Is there. Verse 12, yet to all who did receive him, they believed in his name, and he gave the right to become children. You see, the whole point of that little bit, 9 to 13, is that the word came to be received. It came to be received by Jew and Greek, male or female, rich or poor, distinguished, and especially not. In our time in human history, we have the great gift of being quite distinguished. Um, but What's curious is um, our stories are attached to other people's stories. Like your, what I've learned in my three and a half-ish years in Des Moines is that a lot of people come to Des Moines, but what that means around the holidays is they leave Des Moines to go back home. They go north and east and south and west. They go all the places, and Des Moines is kind of like a shell of itself. See. God has come to like the places that are least expected. He's come into the places that you actually left to come here, and he's come to you when you, this is not as fulfilling as you thought it would be. And th this is the point, the word became flesh, and it's not just a flash in the pan, but then he goes on and makes his dwelling among us, or as the, Eugene, as, as the late Eugene Peterson paraphrases, he moves into the neighborhood. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Heaven's glory grounded in humanity. 
Now, we could just go off on what John's doing with that word dwelling. It's this Greek word that actually has the idea of tabernacling, and I have intentionally not followed up on this because it would be another 15 minutes in this sermon, and Lord knows those seats are hard. But what I would implore you to do is to go to Bible Project and uh, read and listen to all their stuff on temple. And if you want to chase the rabbit even further down the hole, then you're going to want to read Mary Coley's book, God Dwells With Us, Temple Symbolism in the Fourth Gospel. Uh, it essentially builds all around this idea of, of Jesus being the new temple, the new tabernacle, where God's presence resides. Or as Peterson put it, Jesus moved into the neighborhood. <laughs> See, the whole point of this, of, of John saying the word became flesh, scandalous, but then made his dwelling among us is to say that God is not far off. He's actually close at hand. He's not in the tabernacle or the temple or somewhere off in the distance up in the heavens. No, God is at hand. He's as close as your neighbor. See, as in the days of Israel's exodus, when God's glory hovered over the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle, what's the Holy of Holies? You, do you remember when you get to the end of Exodus? It's generally where you stop reading and you're like, read through the Bible because you get like halfway through and the narrative stops around the Exodus and you get to the tabernacle construction and you're like, oh dear Lord, I don't want to read about this stuff. But when you get to Exodus, it's completed. But you know what happens? Moses can't go in. It's an epic cliffhanger. Because you turn the page to Leviticus, and what do you get? Moses is in. Leviticus is all about how do you get into the place. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. See, this is about something that is not just scandalous, but is exciting scandal. Because previously, when people would approach the Ark of the Covenant and perhaps they would touch it in a way that was unfitting, they would die. But now, um, there, we have beheld the glory. When Moses is pleading with Yahweh, I want to see, if, if, okay, if we're, if, you're, if we're going, you gotta come with us, I wanna see you. The people have just rejected God, but he's like, I wanna see you. He's like, I can't let you see me because if you see my face, you'll die, but I'll give you a, a, just a peek of the backside, which I think is um, the, a, like a joke in the Bible. Now this glory, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, it's not just that God has come and that God has come in Christ in the dark places, but it's that God has come in Christ in the dark places, and we can approach it. We can see it. We can behold it. We have seen his glory, and we live and this is where I want us to begin to end, grace and truth, because that is how Jesus came. I don't know if you caught that. He came full of both grace and truth, and truth is a little stickier than grace. Has anybody been tracking the Twitter files? No? You're, okay. One, one teenager, two people. Okay, great. Well, apparently, all of the uh, information sharing the information wars that we blame Russia for at a country level, like those America, ha, yeah, surprise, surprise, everybody's doing it. They're all manipulating information. My, my, my question is this, who do you trust? Like, like really, do, do, um, do you trust politicians? If you're a politician, Lord bless you and keep you. His face shine upon. Like we need followers of Jesus. That's a whole other thing. But like generally, no, it's like this impulse. We could take this away that uh, probably would not go well. Um, do we trust the media? 
No, like for sure skepticism. Maybe a couple of people, if you're in the media, Lord bless you and keep you. May make his face shine upon you. Um, Trust is a difficult thing, but, but you can, in some sense, I guess the narrative is today, you trust yourself, you trust your true story, but man, that's tough because some days I wake up and I yell at my sons and then I apologize and, and I say I'm sorry and that late afternoon it happens again. Um, I don't want to, but is that my truth? I hope not. I hope that there's something more beloved in me that can come through and be given for them. So what does it mean to be full of grace and truth? I think we get grace a little bit more, but it's kind of the grace on our own terms, like grace just to cover over the stuff, maybe not to fill us and shape us and transform us. Jesus comes full of both grace and truth. I think there's a story that helps us to get our arms around this in John chapter eight, which we'll get to in a number of months, but just here's a teaser. Jesus is surrounded by a crowd and there's a a, a festival, a Jewish festival taking place and this woman is thrust in front of him. It's a woman who's been caught in the act of adultery. And as the scene unfolds, what we see is that Jesus gets down into the dirt. He starts writing. And if you're in any seminary class and this is a text that's assigned to you, like all the conjectures about what's Jesus writing? Is it a new commandment? Like what's the thing? And you spend hours talking about that when I wonder if that's even the point. So so let's just listen to this. This is John 8, picking up in verse 7, because the accusers are annoyed at Jesus' resistance to their presence, and so we read this. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, All right, but but the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he dropped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. That is grace. In a picture, that is grace. In the face of her accusers, Jesus creates space by getting down into the dirt, holding the tension of the moment. That is grace. And again, the point is not about what Jesus is writing. The point actually moves us toward this, that grace doesn't deny her sin. Just look at the next verse in, in John eight ten. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, well, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. So Jesus responds, neither do I go and sin no more. That is truth. That is the ability to face reality as it actually is. Grace is not the absence of truth. That is, grace doesn't deny reality, but it makes a way for us to face the full frontal assault of truth, which often feels like condemnation. And it's in that space that grace stands in the face of condemnation to tell a different story. That is grace, but it also says there's consequences for the things that you participate in. Consequences are real. And grace, especially in church contexts, can easily be like bandied about as a means of escaping the consequences of our actions, but that would be cheap grace. If you've heard of the concept of cheap grace before, it's popularized by Bonhoeffer, but he picked it up in the black church. He picked it up in a context where they, where they could not afford to extend cheap grace just nice pleasantries. They had to sit with the grief. They had to sit with the angst and the anguish. They had to actually receive grace from God so that it might move through them to their accusers. That is costly grace. Whatever language 
we want to use today, whether we want to talk about astrological signs or misfortune or bad luck or systemic injustice, at the root of the human condition, the Bible describes it as sin. This, this failure to reckon with God's definition of good and evil. It's the decision to, to say, I will decide where and when and how and what with my own choice. And agency is a beautiful thing. Autonomy has its like shining points, but at some level, I think we would do well to attend to this word sin. Not because it's enjoyable, but because it's truthful. And I'm not talking about truth as in the sense of like a philosophical way. There's a, a different way we can talk about truth. I've talked about it before. It's like an arrow. I'm not into archery, but this illustration flies. That was a joke. Um, if you have an arrow and it is true, what that means is you can pull it back in your bow. I don't, I don't know if that's the sound it makes. And it will go where you've directed it. That arrow is true. However, if maybe there's an unperceptible to the eye curvature in that arrow and you pull it back and it goes where you did not intend it to go. That arrow is not true or in this term it is false. Jesus in this sense, he is full of the reality that like allows us not to avoid our consequences but to, to face the condemnation without shame and he goes where he is heading. That is, Jesus is full of grace and truth. He brings us to a place where he actually takes the condemnation into himself, dies into it so that it will die for sure and allows us to live in his light of life. This is where we say amen. Because that is the revelation of Jesus. That is the light breaking into the world that has overcome the darkness. That is the word who became flesh. Heaven's glory grounded in humanity. In a few verses at the beginning of John's gospel, we get word, flesh, light, darkness, glory among us right in our neighborhood. The question that sits now in front of us is will we be the type of people who see Jesus for who he truly is and will we be the people who receive him with gladness? Maybe not gladness. Will we just be the people who are willing enough to, to say yes? So let's just say this. Um, being a pastor is weird. And here's why it's weird to me, is that I know a lot of your stories, but I don't know the full extent of your stories yet. And I am one person. And so that's likely that Kate maybe knows some of your stories with far greater depth and intensity than I ever will. That's beautiful. And it's likely that the people in your community know some parts of your stories that I may never know or may not be privy to. That too is beautiful. There is some part of our life whether it is known to your best friend or still held by you in secret, that God is interested in piercing with his light to shine on that, not for condemnation's sake, but for healing's sake, so that we might, with that woman, stand and say, whatever it is that she goes on and says next. But I imagine whatever that is that's echoing in her mind is go and sin no more. I don't accuse you. That is the word of Jesus. I do not accuse you in the face of him reckoning with our sin. How can Jesus do this? Well, that's where we come to the end of the story. If you fast forward in John and we get the story of him, actually, that is Jesus moving to the cross, to that place where he then says, it's finished. The thing that started at the beginning, in the beginning, Jesus says is finished on the cross. 
So you don't have to create a new you and a new year, but you might want to consider receiving the new thing that God is doing today and tomorrow and the next day because it's fresh, it's new, it's breaking out. And it may not be ecstatic. It might not be speaking in tongues or prophecy, although I think that stuff's pretty cool. Uh, It might just be in the still silence of the morning that God reminds you of his faithfulness as you see the sun come up over and you're reminded, okay, his grace is sufficient in my weakness. I can move into this day. And so it's with that that I want to invite you into that question. Will you, will I, will we become the type of people who can say yes to the audacity of Jesus in the flesh among us in the neighborhood? Mm -hmm.